I'll be reading from Colossians 3, beginning in verse 18. Colossians 3.18. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we again just acknowledge that you are um, supreme, you are preeminent over all. You created this world and you're sustaining it. And you have every right, Lord, to expect to be reflected in your creation. And we are your creatures, created by your hand. And so, God, I ask that as we look at your word, that we would see this is ultimately not about us, but it's about you being exalted, imaged, made known in our humanity. And we pray that you would, as you find receptive hearts in each of us, and we pray that you would just be communicating, convicting, building up, Lord, the work that needs to be done in each of us, you know, and that you would accomplish by your spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I appreciate um, Brian talking about how at his hill we, we have work days so that what the students are learning in class is translated into how they're living their lives in the dorm work assignments, and just in life in general, because that is what God intends for theology. God never intended for us just to sit in theology courses and say, well, this is wonderful, and sing great songs about God, and then go out and live like the devil. Um, The idea is that what is true of the Lord would be true of us. And so we need to know theology in order to understand how God wants to make himself known in our lives. And so the first two chapters here in Colossians were theology, the preeminence of Christ declared, the preeminence of Christ defended, and now the last two chapters of Colossians 3 and 4 are the preeminence of Christ demonstrated. And so the Lord expects that what is true about him would be reflected in our lives. That shouldn't be earth-shaking for us, but many times it's just things we don't really give thought to. Um, And I, at times, you know, in my teaching and traveling, I've had occasion just to remind people of this, and there's, there are those times when people just go, I never thought about that before. I know that's not true here, um, but just for the sake of repetition, um, there, there is nothing that is true about God that doesn't have a, shouldn't, is meant to have a direct impact on how we live. There's no, um, there's no wall between theology, and ethics. 
Um, I didn't know this until I was in college, and our Bible college, it's changed now, um, but at the time, they were still trying to organize their curriculum, um, how it had been done for centuries in um, seminaries, universities, Bible colleges um, around the world, and that was that you didn't have a course in ethics until your senior year. You'd think you would want your freshman students to be taught ethics, right? <laughs> but they didn't teach ethics to freshman students. They taught theology to freshman, sophomore, and junior students. Heavy theology for the first three years. And the senior year was when the ethics course was taught. And traditionally, ethics was always taught by the president of the university. So Harvard, Princeton, Yale, all the schools, that's how they used to teach. Three years of theology, and in your senior year, ethics. And that's how my Bible college was doing things when I was a student there. The idea is that ethics flows naturally out of theology. And so what is true of God has to be the foundation. And then from that, how we live. And so that's what Paul does in his letters repeatedly. The first half of the letter will be theology. And the second half of the letter is ethics. And so what is true about God is meant to be reflected in how we live our lives. There's no disparity. There's no dividing wall between theology and ethics. When you look around, I know at least um, the United States and Canada, two countries I'm most familiar with, my daughters-in-law have familiarized me with Canada, um, you see, in, at least in our two countries, and I think it's true probably all over the world, that wherever um, you have the greatest liberal ethics, you also have the greatest liberal theology. And the areas of the country that are the most socially conservative are also the areas of our countries that, that are the most theologically conservative because they, are, they have to influence each other. We may think that these are two separate boxes, theology and ethics, and they don't ever, and they don't ever um, coexist. But it's actually one box. Theology and ethics will always influence each other. We cannot separate them. You can try, but you can't, because God has meant that one would influence the other. And as one person once said, either your theology will determine your ethics, or your ethics will determine your theology. But they have to, they coexist together. They are, it's an inseparable link. So this is why A.W. Tozer was famous for saying the most important thing about any person is what he believes in his heart to be true about God. Because what you believe about God is how you're going to live your life. And so many people don't fear God. Why? Because they don't think he's a God to be feared. Their theology is weak, to say the least. And so when you know he's a God to be feared, well, you're going to fear God. <laughs> There's a direct connection between theology and ethics. So Paul now introduces, he's talked generally in the first half of chapter 3 about relationships in general, in particular about the individual and the church's relationship with the body of Christ. But now he's moving away from the general of the body of Christ to the more particular of husband and wife, children and parents, slaves and, and their masters. And so these would be the three categories that are most fundamental to society. The husband-wife relationship, 
the child-parent relationship and the slave-master relationship. This is what society is built on. Now, I'm not endorsing slavery, and we won't even get to slavery this morning. I read the whole passage so you could see it a bit in its context. But I'm thinking today we're probably just going to be looking at the first two verses here, husbands and wives. Um, But these are the fundamental building blocks of society. Not slavery per se, but employer-employee. The work relationship. That there is no society where you don't have have both bosses and employer, employees, workers. And in this, it was slaves and masters, um, but these are the basic building blocks of society. But before you even get to the employment, before that of even more importance is the parent-child relationship. But even more important than that is the first one that he mentions, and that's the marriage, husband and wife. And it is absolutely foundational to society. We're seeing this as we're watching our society fall down around our ears faster than we can even think. And those of us here in the room that are 50 and older, you can think back at how much, time, how much things have changed. I know that you know, when I was growing up and you know, we were being introduced to TV and every, every home in America was watching TV too much, but there really wasn't much on TV that was dangerous. I mean, I think about, you know, you could turn on the TV any time of day and you're going to be watching Leave it to Beaver or you're going to be watching The Little Rascals. Um, That was probably the most dangerous thing on TV to watch at the time because it gave you a lot of ideas of what to do. You know, Bonanza on Sunday evenings. Um, You know, the the world of Disney that, that came on. I mean, you think about all the things that today... You know, or, I mean, they don't even show things like that. They're, you watch the reruns, you know, because they aren't, they aren't making shows like that any longer. I mean, there was nothing that you could turn on TV that wasn't safe. The commercials were safe, except they did have smoking commercials back in those days. And, but they were, everything was safe. Today, nothing is safe. And so with the reruns, they may be safe, but boy, you better hold the remote for when the commercials come up, Right? Because you don't want your little kids or grandkids watching a lot of those commercials. And it's, it's, our society is falling down. And these mass shootings that take place, and they just, they're becoming too routine. But they're common denominators. And we're all hearing about this and more of the social commentators of our society. And they're pointing out some very obvious things that the media never points out. Is that these people that are doing these shootings, almost every time, are single men. Young men. And if you start digging, you don't have to dig very far. You find out that many times there wasn't a father that was present in those homes. That the marriages have been destroyed. And now the very basic building blocks of society are falling apart. We have to understand that there is probably no single element of society that is under greater satanic attack than the marriage. Because this is the fundamental building block of society. Always has been. Always will be. We are not going to to trifle with God's design without suffering severe consequences for it. And God's design here is spelled out as, as simply as anywhere in Scripture in these two verses. There are other places in Scripture that get into it more. Ephesians chapter 5, for example, has much more to say about the husband-wife relationship than these two verses. 
But these verses here just say it in a nutshell. We don't like it. It may not feel wise. It may feel oppressive. None of that should be true. And we understand that we can take what is good and make it oppressive. We can take what God meant as good and turn it into something that is evil. We have an immense capacity to ruin and to pervert and destroy what God has said is good. But as God said these things, he said them in wisdom. And if we ever had an opportunity to see the other side, the contrary to what God has said, we're living in the days now when we can see what happens when we ignore what God has said. It's screaming at us. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to, as is fitting in the Lord. So the vertical relationship between the individual and God is meant to impact how we live horizontally. There is no separation here. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, there are some observations to make right from the outset with each of these couplets here. Three different classifications, husband, wife, children, parents, slaves, masters. In each of the three, there is hierarchy that's here, a word that often is not very popular today. And in each of the three, it is the one who, who is um, under who is mentioned first, and then the head of that relationship is mentioned second. So wives are mentioned before husbands, children are mentioned before parents, and the slave is mentioned before the master. So Paul is trying to say something here. Another observation is is that he he puts the subordinate first, but he's directing the subordinate party directly. There is never a time in scripture where he says to husbands, tell your wives to submit. That never works. There is never a time in Scripture where it tells parents, tell your children to do this. Or the master, tell your slave to do this. Paul is directly speaking to wives, children, and slaves. In doing that, he's dignifying them. He's honoring them. He's saying, you are worth being recognized. I am not going to ignore you. You wouldn't speak to a slave in the room except to tell him what to do. And Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, none of that's true in Christ. Every person has dignity and worth in Christ. And so many would say, well, this was just a strongly patriarchal society. Men ruled. Women had no voice. Well, if that's true, why is Paul speaking directly to the women? This is not about patriarchy. This is about Trinitarianism. See, everything that Paul says about husbands and wives is rooted in the Trinity, And that's where he gets his authority for what he's saying. It's not about being a patriarchal society. It is about what is true within the Godhead. And Paul is wanting wives to be subject to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord because Christ is subject to the Father. And the Holy Spirit is subject to Christ. This is not a consequence of sin, being in submission. Jesus has for all eternity been the eternal Son of God. He has always lived in submission. We don't like submission because of sin. That is the only reason we have a problem with submission and obedience. It is because of sin. And so Jesus is the obedient one. And when he tells a wife, 
be submissive to your husband, he is not saying to her to do anything other than what he himself does. He is submissive. He is obedient. And it is his joy to be so. And so he is encouraging a woman to step into the very heart of Christ when he says this. He is not putting on her something that he is not prepared to do and fulfill in her. And so when the scripture says that Jesus is the fullness of God and all fullness dwells in him, when the scripture says that our life is Christ and our life is hidden in Christ, and when the scripture says that Christ is all and he is in all, which is all what Paul's been saying in Colossians, everything I just quoted straight from Colossians. And then he says, wives, be subject to your husbands. He is directing the wife to Jesus who is the very fullness of God. Fullness is not in living an independent life. Fullness is in living in submission to Jesus Christ, as God has said, and that is true for men and women both. Fullness is not in independence. Fullness is in dependence upon Christ and in obedience to him, because in him all the fullness dwells. And I will never find a fulfilling life in living a life that is independent of Christ in his design for me. He is life. Marriage is not life. Being single doesn't mean your life is over. Being married doesn't mean you have discovered and entered into life. Jesus is life. He is our life, and our life is hidden in him. Marriage is not the all in all. Jesus is the all in all. These are things that he's been saying in the book of Colossians. And when he says, wives, be subject to your husbands, it isn't to ruin our life. It's to bring us into the fullness of his life, Jesus Christ. I can get to preaching. This is not, I hope you understand, in any way to point fingers or to hammer or anything like that. My, my passion and emotion here is only because I, I so, with all my being, believe that God's design is good. And anything else is evil. And it is the destruction of our own lives and of the society that we want to have and that we love and cherish. Six times in the New Testament, wives, be subject to your husbands. That's a lot. I don't know that there's any other imperative command of Scripture that's repeated six times. Obviously, this is a big deal. Six times. Five by Paul in five different letters and one by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. Huge deal. Some would want to say that this command to be in subjection to, to be submissive to, is bilateral. It's mutual submission. And there is aspects, obviously, of marriage that are very, very mutual. You, we show mutual, unconditional love, mutual respect, mutual honor. But when it comes to submission, 
the word hupotasso in the Greek is never bilateral. It's never two-directional. It is always, without exception, one-directional. So I'll give you some examples. Stealing this from a little booklet called 50 Crucial Questions um, from the larger book um, put out by the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood uh, that's on manhood and womanhood. And the authors here um, are excellent. And they point out that, I'll just read directly, the term always implies a relationship of submission to an authority. It is used elsewhere in the New Testament and these start just enlisting the various ways that this word is used. It is used elsewhere in the New Testament of the submission of Jesus to the authority of his parents, of demons being subject to disciples, of citizens being subject to government authorities, of the universe being subject to Christ, of unseen spiritual powers being subject to Christ, of Christ being subject to God the Father, of church members being subject to church leaders, of the church being subject to Christ, of servants being subject to their masters, and of Christians being subject to God. None of these relationships is ever reversed. That is, husbands are never told to be subject to wives, the government to citizens, masters to servants, or the disciples to demons. The word is never mutual in its force. It is always one-directional, in its reference to submission to an authority. That is irrefutable. So when we want to make it to be something other, to make it mutual, we are imposing a meaning upon that word that is in violation of how it was originally used. And what is meant by submission? Quoting from these same authors, we have to be careful here because it does not mean subservience. And I got out my Webster's Dictionary and looked up the word subservient, and it talks about having no will of your own, of being totally dominated by another. That is not what submission means. Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. She submits out of reverence for Christ, as Ephesians 5.21 says. The supreme authority of Christ qualifies the authority of her husband. That statement will also apply to parents. The supreme authority of Christ qualifies the authority of the husband. The supreme authority of Christ qualifies the authority of parents as well. She should never follow her husband into sin. Nevertheless, even when she may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, she can still have a spirit of submission, a disposition to yield. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. I feel like that's good balance. 
It is unilateral, it is never bilateral. It is true of the Trinity. It is repeated six times. The command is for wives to be in subjection to their husbands. There is no place that scripture even hints that all women are to be in subjection to all men. That is demonic. It is maybe true of Islam. It has never been true biblically. It is not God's design that all women be in subjection to all men. It is one woman in subjection to one man. It speaks of marriage and does not go beyond that. It is not placing this husband in the place of God, but it is as unto the Lord, as is fitting in Christ. I tell young couples when they get married, oftentimes in the weddings, I I feel like I'm a broken record. So if you've seen me um, officiate more than two weddings, you've heard me say the same things over and over again. And I'm really talking to myself as much as I'm talking to that young couple. And because um, I need the reminder. And, and it's hard for Patsy to sit and watch me do all these because these weddings because she realizes how far, sh- far short I fall. Um, but it's good for me. I need the reminder. And one of the things I'll tell these young brides is the God who led you to this man can lead you through this man. Because they're all standing there going, look what God has done. And we're, and we're witnessing, saying, amen, hallelujah, look what God has done. But then the fear creeps in. Because she realizes, he's an idiot. Sooner or later, she comes to that very stark, fearful realization. He does it. And I know better than he does. I'm in deep trouble here. And so panic sets in. And so she begins to want to do more than just pray for him and influence him. She wants to get him by the collar and shake him, get some sense into that thick head of his. And all of it, she's being motivated in large part by fear. But the God who led you to this man is able to lead you through this man. Sarah submitted to Abraham. And he twice lied and said, she's my sister. And half-truth is a lie. (laughs) Put her in a position of great vulnerability. And yet, it says that she submitted to him and even obeyed him without fear. Well, how in the world does that happen? It's because she was trusting in God. She was submitted to her husband. But her trust was not in her husband. Her trust was in God. And that's how we have to live. We all have authorities in our life that we submit to. But we don't trust those authorities. So we're getting to a time now in this country where we're wanting to trust our government. We have to submit to our government. But we don't trust our government. We trust God. And it's the same thing in a marriage. And it's the same thing we're trying to instill in our children, isn't it? You need to submit because I'm your parent. But you need to trust God. Because we want them to translate, not just trust, to transfer that trust in us to a trust in God. And if that transfer never happens, then we've become the enemy of God. We're standing in the place of God. We become idols in the lives of our children. Government can become an idol, husband can become an idol. 
when the trust is in the human rather than in God. So there's no reason to fear because our trust is in the Lord. And there are limits, as I just read, on submission, on subjection. It is not an absolute. No one has the right or authority to command what God forbids or to forbid what God permits. Let me say that again. No one, no husband has the right to command of his wife what God forbids. And no husband has the right to permit or, or to, to forbid what God permits. So many times it comes up, I hear people say, for example, it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, why can't women be elders, preachers in a church? Well, the short answer is, it's because God forbids it. Well, what if the church leadership permits it? And so that woman is now functioning under the authority of the elders in her position of authority. Well, again, the short answer is, no church has the authority to permit what God forbids. So no man, it's like if you're driving through comfort where I happen to live, I do not have the authority to tell you you can drive at 70 miles an hour when the speed limit is posted at 35. I cannot permit what the state forbids. And a husband cannot permit what God forbids, nor can he forbid what God permits. There are limits to authority and limits to submission. And another point, it is God who defines all virtue and all sin. The church doesn't define, culture doesn't define, God defines what is virtuous and what is sinful. Not man, not culture. So then, even when it comes to submission, it is not the husband that defines submission. It is not the culture that defines submission. It is God that defines submission. You're probably ready for me to move on and talk about husbands with the 15 minutes that are left. I'll just say this before we turn to husbands. A perfect husband is not the answer. They don't exist. A perfect heart toward Christ is. An imperfect husband is not the problem. Our flesh is. Now to husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered toward them. Now again, that's about a short, direct, um, compact way of saying um, what the Bible speaks to as can be said. Love your wives. And once again, God defines that. Not the husband. Not the wife. One of the things I have to tell these women, these young brides when they get married, is you're not marrying your girlfriend. He's a man. So he's going to love you as a man. He's not going to love you as your sister, as your girlfriend. Get used to it. He, he doesn't understand hints. He's not trying to be indifferent to you. He's not trying to ignore you. He just doesn't understand hints. 
And I've been thinking about this in preparation for the sermon. I'm going, what? I need to give some illustrations to these young brides on what a hint is. Because they often, you women don't understand when you're giving hints. You think you're being very clear. And a guy just doesn't get it. And you think he's just ignoring me. He just, he's just being difficult. Let me give you a hint. The dishwasher needs to be unloaded. The trash needs to be taken out. Now, so you think those are direct statements. A man takes that as just trivia. Those are just, those are just interesting bits of information that you've just given me. Okay? What I need to hear is, Charlie, the dishwasher is full. Would you mind emptying it? No, sweetheart. No problem at all. Charlie, the trash is, is full and needs to be taken out. Would you mind taking it out? Be glad to take it out. Because see, if it doesn't come to that direct request, see, all you've done is made a hint, and I don't do hints. And after 34 years of marriage, I'm finally understanding some of the things that Patsy's saying. And I'm not trying to be thick. I'm just thick. <laughs> it just, I'm male. It's the way that it works. I don't understand hints. And so you, you women don't even know that's a hint. You think you've asked as directly as you can ask. And you haven't. Because direct is saying, would you take it out? Would you unload it? That's direct. Okay. I understand that. I can deal with that. And I'm happy, happy to help. But when you just say, the dishwasher's full, I go, okay, dishwasher's full. (laughs) And I'm not trying to be difficult when I don't jump on it. Because I haven't heard do something about it. And that's just the way it is. Guys are this way. We are simple, uncomplicated creatures for the most part. And, it, and, it, and, the, and you ladies, it, you, you just don't get it that so many times that we're, we're not trying to be difficult. We love you. We want to, you for you to be happy. Happy wife is a happy life. Why would I not empty the dishwasher if you want it emptied? If that's what it makes to make your day, I want to empty the dishwasher. But I don't understand until you tell me, would you please do it? Yes, I love to empty the dishwasher to make you happy because I want you happy. It's very simple stuff. So husbands, love your wives. And the definition of this is in Ephesians 5, as Christ loves the church. Well, now I, need, I still, as a man, I need more explanation. What does that mean, as Christ loves the church? He gave himself for her. Okay, well, I, that, so he's willing to die for her. Yes, that's part of it. But see, it's more than just being willing to, to be the guy, you know, you, know the, you hear the bang and crash at night. And so the wife goes, you hear that? Yeah, I heard that. Did you hear that? Well, it's, Why don't you go check on that? No, he's the, he gets up because he's the husband. He gets, why? Because he's willing to die for his wife. So he gets up, just as scared as she is, maybe more frightened, but he gets up and he walks around looking for what the bang and the crash was, right? Because he's the guy. He has to do that. It means more than that, as I'm still learning. Because Christ didn't just, as it were, die on the cross. He lived every day, every moment, in denial of himself, dying to himself, and responding to the Father. See, that's love. 
love isn't just the, the extreme act of, you know, somebody breaks into my home, I need to be able to be willing to get up and, and take the bullet. When is that going to happen? Do you know anybody that's ever happened to? I mean, that is so rare. So, okay, I'm off the hook as a guy. The only time I need to love my wife is when she is in physical danger, when her life is being threatened, then be willing to do something about it. And the rest of the time, I get to do whatever I want. No. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. That means all the time, dying to self. She's first. I'm not first. She's first. Everything I do is with her in mind. Everything Christ does is with the church in mind. I'm constantly thinking of her welfare, her good, not mine. And so that's, that's what's going on. Ought to be going on in my head with, with every dollar I spend, with every day of vacation that I take. My wife. And what is her good? What is going to build her up? What is going to make her help her in her relationship with Jesus? Because again, in Ephesians, Paul says to nurture her and to cherish her. I'm learning that cherishing my wife, again, God defines this. I don't define this. So I've, I've talked to guys sometimes, and I've said, you know how you've got that car and how you're always cleaning it and waxing it and vacuuming it and everything? And that's, you're cherishing your car. And, oh, yeah, I can get that. And so they, that word picture, kind of the association, they can understand that. But it's more than this. Because, see, that, that kind of relates to, oh, I, okay, I can kind of get a little closer to what cherish means, but I'm learning as a husband. Part of what cherishing means is to cherish what she cherishes. Because it's her heart. And if I cherish her, I'm just, it's not just about making sure that, that she's got adequate clothing and, you know, and nice home to live in and, you know, and that life is generally pleasant for her. But where is her heart? And what's important to her? And to cherish her, which includes cherishing her heart. And so for, I married into Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And you've heard many stories through the years about the Funks. There's 300 of them now. They're breeding like rabbits. And I love the Funks. I honestly do. And so I've pulled my, my, my bride away from Lancaster County. She is one of three, I think it is, that lives outside the county of all those 300. A person who was born and raised in Pennsylvania is the least likely of all 50 states to ever move away from Pennsylvania. That is a fact. And so they cherish family. They cherish Pennsylvania. Now, we don't get back to Pennsylvania very often. But I've realized, and I'm not a smart guy, but one of the smartest things I ever did was to learn to love her family. Because it is more important than anything I can relate to in my cultural experience. Because I grew up in Texas. And Texas is a big deal to Texans. But it's not like Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. We are way, we don't even begin to understand. And I, and, and her family, those cousins, know I like their family. I don't just love them, I like them. 
I like being with them. And so just last night, one of them Instagrammed me, you know, two of them, they Instagrammed me, and, and you know, they, got their, they got their picture there. And, 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 I just, and I just wrote back, I miss being there so much it hurts. Because camp meeting's going on right now. And they're all together. And it is such a, 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 you can't describe the experience. All those little kids playing with their Tonka trucks out there in the gravel. You know, the old guys that are, that are up playing cards late at night. And everybody's eating way too much ice cream. You know, and it, it, it's just an amazing time. But see, I'm, I'm not just cherishing Patsy as a person, but I have to cherish what she cherishes. And, and I know she cherishes that family. And I've learned to cherish that family. And that's loving her as Christ loves the church, to cherish and to nurture. When he speaks of nurturing in Ephesians 5, in relation to the church, he says that he washes her with the word. And it's always been interesting to me that in Ephesians 5, when he says he washes her, Christ washes the church with the word, that he might, that might present her to himself spotless and without blemish. But the word word isn't, isn't capitalized in the New American Standard. And, but it's Christ washing his bride with the word, but it's not capitalized. And maybe, you know, and again, it's, it's an interpretive decision. But it's made me think. Because again, our biggest, one of our biggest weaknesses for most of us generally as men is we don't converse very well. And I just did a wedding a couple weekends ago of Raquel and Gabe. Some of y'all were here. And I told Gabe, you know, standing here on the platform, I said, Gabe, and I grabbed him by the arm. And I said, emotionally, you are a pygmy. And to Raquel, emotionally, you are a giant. And I told Gabe, you have got to learn how to talk. And I have, I'm still, I am no expert with this. I'm a quiet guy by nature. And it is, and I, I have to, it is, I have to push myself. But see, my wife doesn't just need to come to church and hear the word of God. She doesn't just need to read her Bible and get the word of God. She needs the word of God. But she needs my words, too. And I'm grateful that I have, but too many, hus- too many wives have husbands that don't speak to them. How is that, loving your wife as Christ loves the church, when you won't even talk to your wife? You won't even have a conversation with her. When you won't express what's going on in your life, how your day's been, what's go- what you're struggling with, the joys, the downfalls, all of it. Just talk. It's not easy for us guys. But if you're going to love your wife as Christ loves the church, You've got to learn how to talk, because Christ talks to his bride. And husbands need to learn how to talk to their wives. And a lot of wives, you know, if this was a black church, the wives would be waving their white handkerchiefs. It's about giving of self for her with the goal of her betterment and her sanctification. I dated a girl one time after I'd heard somebody say the definition of love 
is the intelligent volition for the betterment of another person. Wow. See, there's nothing emotional about that definition. The intelligent volition for the betterment of another person. That means you've got to think. And guys don't usually think, especially when it comes to love. And so I started a relationship not long after I heard that definition. And I made it my goal that every time I was with that girl, I would intelligently choose the intelligent volition for the betterment of another person. And I would think about that date and that evening. How can I leave her a better person? You know, that is exhausting. It is truly exhausting because guys don't think, especially when it comes to love. But I thank the Lord. That relationship obviously ended. Um, she, she dumped me for some other guy. And um, fine. Um, I got the better woman. But Patsy and I, on occasion, still see that woman. She's a grandmother, just like we're grandparents. And um, I am so thankful that every time I was with that girl, I was choosing for her betterment. Now there's no regrets. She's the only girl that I dated other than Patsy that I still see on occasion. (laughs) And she's the only one where there's no regrets. And I thank the Lord, no regrets, because I was daily thinking of her betterment. This is what Jesus does. He is constantly thinking about our good, our betterment. And so being a husband is not just um, providing. It's not just protecting. It's nurturing and cherishing. And these are active words. They are actions that God is calling us to. I was going to talk about being embittered, but we're out of time. So maybe I'll come back to that next Sunday. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do thank you so much that all that you've called us to is, is good. And it is also impossible. We are not able in our own humanity, Lord, to flesh out any of these things. But this is why our life is hidden in Christ. And this is why Jesus is the all in all. All fullness dwells in him. And he is more than sufficient for all, Lord, that you are calling us to. I just pray, God, we would just submit to your will and that we would embrace it by faith and that we would trust you, O God, to work in us and through us what is your design for marriage. We pray that you would use us, God, as salt and light to stop the decay in this fallen world and to illumine righteousness that would give hope to those who are so, so struggling and caught in destructive lifestyles. We know, God, that just the light is hated, and it is increasingly being hated in this country. And even loving a wife and a wife living in subjection to her husband are things that are just despised, in this world. And I pray you would give us the grace, Lord, to stand in what you've said, to walk humbly, 
and to embrace by faith, God, your good design for us. And I do thank you, Lord, that you are sufficient for these things. In Christ's name, amen.